The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to guess you might consider yourself what we used to call a news junkie. It's a phrase that, for me, is a lot more freighted than it used to be. I'm ambivalent about the word junkie, which I now tend to take more personally than I used to. And I'm also ambivalent about the word news. I'm actually ambivalent about news as a thing. It's not just that the phrase fake news has been literally weaponized. It's not just the attacks from the president and his fans. It's the attacks from within. It's the fact that I'm no longer sure if being a journalist is the kind of righteous crusade I once believed it to be. I am definitely over the fiction that news is neutral. It is always doing something, harm or good. And my guest today, Whitney Phillips, has written a report, The Oxygen of Amplification, Better Practices for Reporting on Extremists, Antagonists, and Manipulators, that is all about the harm. And that's why you'll hear me tell her right up front that her report depressed me more than the book we featured last month, Arjun Singh Sethi's American Hate, if you'll recall. That book is filled with first-person accounts from the survivors of hate crimes. It was sobering. It was horrifying. But as Arjun pointed out in our discussion, there was some light around the edges. There was the strength and purpose of the survivors themselves, and the fact that the way forward in dealing with hate crimes includes, among other things, bearing witness to that strength. That book was hard to read, but you should read it. (laughs) It was good to read, and I knew I was doing something good by reading it. And more to the point, it was really easy for me to think of myself as different from the perpetrators of those hate crimes. Whitney's report did not offer me such relief. I could not read it as someone who was thinking about what the people in the report did. I am the people in that report. I have written about white supremacists and other bigots in ways that helped amplify their voices. It doesn't really matter that I would guess 99% of the time I was making fun of them. As she put it toward the end of our conversation, Funny is how we got here. In keeping with the confessional tone of this introduction, I would like to note that in Whitney's and my discussion of the need for diverse viewpoints in newsrooms and in sourcing, 
We both failed to consider diversity in religion and physical ability. In her report, she actually talks about um, the ways that not being Christian helped make some journalists sensitive to the problems of reporting on white supremacy that those raised in a purely Christian context might not think of. But neither of us mentioned the need for disabled people in newsrooms. And now that I'm thinking about it, we probably should have talked about class, too. There are probably other categories of diversity that I'm not thinking about right now. The overarching point, which you will hear us hit on a few times, is that newsrooms filled with well-off, straight, cis, able-bodied, Christian white men are also how we got here. My guest today is, as I said, Whitney Phillips. She is an assistant professor of communication, culture, and digital technologies at Syracuse University, studying media manipulation and digital ethics. She's the co-author of The Ambivalent Internet, Mischief, Oddity, and Antagonism Online. And she's the author of one of the best named books I have ever seen, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm, let's see, I was going to say I'm excited to talk to you about this, but to be perfectly honest, this report is one of the most depressing things I've read for this show. (laughs) And I think I have to even include the book that was Survivor's Stories of Hate Crimes. Oh, goodness. Because while that was depressing and tragic, it also had some element of hope to it, and I felt like I was doing a good thing by reading it. This, well, I felt implicated. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that's not your intent. In fact, in this report, you you explain a few times that you don't want to make individual journalists feel bad. In fact, when I asked you for some examples, you did not want to give them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so I have been following this sort of argumentative thread for the last 10 years. And I think when I first started doing the work, when I first started studying trolls in 2008, which was 25,000 years ago, I was more inclined to be um, more, I don't want to say more pointed in my critique, but I was thinking less about the individual journalists who were publishing these stories. And I was just kind of lumping everyone in together and kind of critiquing it all on on mass. And then when I started doing this project and speaking to individual reporters and really understanding that, yeah, there's a lot to critique and there's a lot to critique systemically. And if you go after individual journalists, yes, you could, you know, critique individual problematic stories, but that doesn't speak to the broader economic pressures that many journalists face, the sort of harassment issues that they're dealing with, labor stuff. It's not dealing with the underlying sort of speech issues in this country. So by pointing the finger at an individual journalist, you know, that might feel good in the moment, but you're not engaging with the broader structural issues. And instead, you're just sort of finger pointing. And so while I may have been more inclined to do that earlier in my career, talking to journalists, it, it, on one hand, it uh, further entrenched my underlying systemic critique and made me more sensitive to the experiences and the, the tensions and pressures that individualist 
individual journalists face. And so trying to walk that line between trying not to unduly target individual journalists while also pointing to the broader problems, that was a difficult, that was a difficult needle to thread. And I I worried about that throughout the entire process. Again, because I spoke to so many different journalists and was just getting a deeper sense of what it means to be a member of the news media at this moment in time. I have to say, I almost feel like that experience for you is kind of a writ small version of what more journalists should be doing in covering white supremacy, which is mm. to say to talk to the people who are impacted by the criticism. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. And I think that that <laughs> probably is my largest critique. Um, the sort of broadest systemic critique is that there are a lot of reasons why journalists would be covering um, far right extremism and I mean, economic reasons being the most obvious, and the most pressing. Um so there are reasons why people do it, individual reasons and then systemic reasons, reasons within the newsroom, all of that. But what gets missed what what gets missed in that um coverage is, yeah, thinking about who is actually impacted by this coverage, that it often the sort of meta reflection almost stops with the white supremacists and it does not extend itself to, you know, the people of color who live in the neighborhoods with these folks or the kids who's you know, um, parents marched at Charlottesville or who engage in these kinds of behaviors and what that does to a classroom um, landscape environment. So thinking about what the impact uh, not just of white supremacy is, but what coverage of white supremacy does in terms of making the issues more visible. And I think that, you know, if more people were thinking about, well, who does this actually impact? What does this actually do? Um, you know, the approach to coverage might be different at a systemic level. Yeah, thinking about the people you cover as being human, but also thinking about the ideas that you are writing about as having an imp impact on real world bodies, which you come back to again and again in the piece, the bodies involved here, that it's so easy in this day and age to kind of, you know, literally disembody ideas and, and coverage. Think of coverage as a thing that isn't produced by people, you know? Mm -hmm. But the, the more granular you can get about ideas and about where they come from, the more you have to think about the real life, everyday people who are impacted by, by these ideas. We've been talking about some of the ideas in the piece, but I do want to pull back and see if we can talk about the piece in general. It's, 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 it's sort of like white supremacy in that it's easy to summarize I think, the, some of your conclusions. Um, but as soon as you start to look at it in any detail, things get very, very complicated. Obviously, the short version of your report is that coverage of white supremacy um, provides oxygen to those ideas. What is the slightly more elaborated uh, version uh, of your report, if you, can, if you can give us a top-line version of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of the question of, well, what what is newsworthy these days and how do you balance the impulse, the need to cover what happens in the world to do the job of the news, right? While at the same time, navigating and being sensitive to the fact that just by showing up for work and doing your job as assigned as a reporter, you can actually make the work of far-right extremists um, and other media manipulators that much easier. That, you know, this information is both important, um, or at least certain framings of the information, because some some coverage is, is inherently problematic. But, you know, communicating to the general public, what is happening in the world is important. And that's what journalism does and needs to do. But 
when you do that, you actually um, undermine democracy. So how do you <laughs> how do you navigate those two critically important issues? And that and that's the um, topic that the overall project tries to navigate by you know talking to individual journalists and and news um, uh, people who deal with the ethics of journalism and, and professors and folks just to get a sense of, okay, well, how do we do this? How do we do this humanely? What is the smartest approach to a media landscape that is so easily hijacked by manipulators and extremists? So I think there is a narrative out there that that a lot of people buy into, at least I could think I can safely say the listeners to this show um, have some version in their heads that trolls stole the election. Um uh, white supremacists are out there, you know, uh, making trouble. And Donald Trump uh, somehow plugged into that. And that's why he won. And um, I, I'm not sure how else to put it, like, but it was the troll election, right? Right. That trolls, yeah, trolls won 2016. Trolls won 2016. Yeah, that's, a, that's a pervasive narrative. And, right. you know, the danger with that kind of narrative, first of all, is that it affords trolls and scare quotes, you know, however you want to qualify that term, but it affords them a great deal of power and influence. And the problem is that comparatively, if you're talking about demographics in this country, their numbers are actually very, very small. And they rely on the amplification power, not just of far-right media outlets like Breitbart and the like, but they rely on outlets center-left sort of establishment mainstream, however you want to describe it, but they rely on outlets like the New York Times to communicate these ideas to so many more eyes than ever would have encountered their behavior otherwise. And that relationship is something between media manipulators and then mainstream journalists. That's something I've been tracking for the last 10 years. So by kind of falling in line with the trolls' own narrative that they helped win the election, you're doing you're doing their PR work for them by sort of carrying that that banner that they have this power. But you're also not engaging with the very complex fact that mainstream journalism helps make um, extremist fringe groups all the more mainstream simply by reporting on them. Yeah, I think that for me, there are two things brought home by by your report that aren't covered in that narrative, right? And one of them is that by focusing on, again, we'll get back to the word troll, but let's <laughs> use it use it now. Uh, by focusing on trolls, so-called trolls, um, we define racism up. Mm. Uh, we we call we we say using the N word for instance something that's in the news right now we say that's racism we say we say white nationalism is racism uh, and I think that what that does in coverage is allows a lot of people to be well that's not me you know mm -hmm. I'm not that person so I guess I'm not racist because uh, I doubt I mean just numerically speaking. It isn't that trolls did not win the election for Trump, <laughs> right? Like just in sheer numbers, that's not who voted for him. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that that does is that it, as a, as for journalists, what that narrative does is also kind of provides an, an easier way to understand the election that leaves us out of it. Right, right. That makes it be like, well, this was a contest of ideas and I'm just I'm just the referee. 
you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. Marketplace of ideas. Yeah. No, that's a big that that comes up quite often in these conversations. Yeah. And and so you you complicate that. And and one of I have there's so much I want to get to. Um, but maybe we should talk about the troll word first, since <laughs> since we don't I, I would like to stop using it for reasons that you will explain. We will no longer use the word troll from this in this interview from here out. And you, please tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in an awkward position because I, I began my career studying subcultural trolls. And so then to pivot away from it, um, as I have, always always is a little bit tricky. But yeah, so first of all, I appreciate you letting me talk about that. Um, and really, the issue is that the group of people who I studied, so my first book was on subcultural trolls. And when I talk about trolling these days, I always, and I'm referring to my earlier research, I always coordinate off as being subcultural. That this is what emerged on and around 4chan's B-board in the early mid-2000s. It signified something very specific for participants. Trolling was an identity. It wasn't something you accuse someone else of doing. That's how the word had been used in earlier days. That's a longer conversation. But so subcultural trolling through media amplification, actually, um, through the fact that more and more journalists started using the word troll and everyday citizens started using the word troll, it kind of became uncoupled from the subcultural contours of the spaces that I had studied. And by 2011, I want to say, the word troll was being employed to describe a whole range of behavior behaviors um, that, you know, ranged from you know, identity-based harassment, really explicitly harassing abusive behavior, all the way to just kind of like funny pranks between friends. And that, and and it became even more striking in 2015 um, when people started using the word troll to describe essentially neo-Nazism, you know. And the problem with that framing, first of all, it makes conversations that use the word troll inherently slippery because it's not entirely clear what someone means when they use the word troll. They may have a clear idea in their minds, but their audience may not. And so those conversations are going to be right out of the gate, sort of difficult to follow and to really understand what someone is is even talking about. Oh. But beyond that, the problem with using the word troll is to describe especially identity-based harassment and, you know, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, is that it almost collapses it collapses that extreme sort of violent behavior with behavior that is more performative and more sort of playful. That's the one sense of the term that's kind of persisted over time is that trolling is something you do sort of ironically. It's something that happens on the internet. So it's very easy to talk about trolling as if it's this cordoned off behavior that doesn't have any real world implications. And beyond that, because it often has a sort of winking, playful, ironic quality to it, or at least that's the assumption, it gives extremists and manipulators an immediate rhetorical out that if they get called out for something that people find dehumanizing, so not even offensive, but straight up dehumanizing and delegitimizing of entire groups of, of people, it's so easy for the person to turn around and just say, well, I was just trolling. That trolling so easily lends itself to that you know, rejoinder of I was just trolling as if you could reduce it to just just a joke, just something that exists on the internet. And so I think that by using that term, even if inadvertently, you know, you accidentally set people up to not taking seriously the kinds of behaviors that have immediate embodied repercussions, um, you know, and and also buys into the sort of victim blaming logic of, well, 
if you didn't want to get trolled on the internet, well, then you should just learn not to respond. Don't feed the trolls. If you get trolled, it's ultimately your fault. So it causes all these problems, sort of political problems, in addition to just being imprecise. And so when I am describing behavior on the internet, I describe it in terms of the impact it has on the people that are targeted. So I don't care if someone is being racist ironically, that is racist expression. So I'm going to describe it in those terms. Or if a behavior is manipulative of the media, I'm going to call it media manipulation. If someone is being abusive, I call it abusive. I don't really care about motives because what ultimately matters is how does this impact people? And use of trolling or use of any other kind of euphemistic framing, it just misses that point and it takes you away from the visceral experience of being maligned, dehumanized, and harmed on the internet. I feel like this is kind of the flip side of uh, truism on you know, in the in progressive circles uh, that we often associate uh, with how we describe people maybe with disabilities, which is the people first uh, identifiers. Like, I am a person who is addicted to drugs, right? Mm. I am not an addict. Um, in this framework, sort of the flip side of it, you're talking about the impact that people have. You're talking about their behavior rather than trying to sort of give them, you know, a mask of some kind. I mean, I think in some ways you're talking about something else we've talked about on this program a lot, which is that it is often not helpful to call people racist. It is sometimes helpful to call their behavior racist, or to call the the impact of their behavior, you know, as some something that has a racist outcome. And well, I, right, because you can point to that 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 yeah. is something that is, you know, that isn't doesn't hinge on the you know person's state of mind. So if you the second that you fall into kind of um, motives, like speculating about what someone's motives, did they have a racist intent? Were they were they really joking? You know, those kinds of things. Then you're automatically, you are off the track and you're talking not about the impact and not about what, you know, what can be done um, to address a particular grievance. You're now talking about the inner lives of Participants who are often not just online, but, you know, massively networked and maybe they have handles on Twitter or whatever, but you don't know who they are. And so why are you speculating about their inner lives? That's actually not the point. One of the concepts that has become more important in my work as the years have gone on is what's known as Poe's Law. And it's an internet internet axiom that sort of emerged or was labeled in the early mid-2000s. And it essentially indicates the difficulty of distinguishing sincerity from satire online because you don't have the same kinds of context cues that you would in embodied spaces. And of course, people perform and lie and stuff offline too, but you can look at someone and make a judgment call. And on the internet, it's really hard to do that. So not only do motives not matter when it comes to assessing impact or they they don't matter as much as as people tend to think that they do. Like if if you're not trying to be racist and you're not racist in your heart, but you say something and it is dehumanizing, why does your why does your inner state matter more than the person that you've that you've impacted? So, you know, motives are interesting and can shed light and help illuminate conversations. But, you know, they also, like I said, they sidetrack from these broader um, discussions of of who of who gets impacted. And so if you're taking pose off for granted and you're accounting for the fact that you can't really tell what somebody really means online and instead focusing on what you can know, what you can see, what you can respond to, that just allows for 
a, a better sort of targeted intervention to whatever behavior you happen to be describing. So if you are a regular listener to the show, you already know that I love my bras from Third Love. So I'm going to share with you the fact that other people who listen to the show also love their bras from Third Love, one of whom uh, shared with me a picture over social media of her wearing her bra. Um, and I want to thank her. I, that's not what I expect to get when I open up Instagram. But you know what? I was happy to see it. And the other thing I will share is that Parker Malloy, friend of the show Parker Malloy, actually tweeted out, so I don't feel bad sharing this, for the first time in my life, I have a bra that fits, which is kind of great. And she has a bra with, that fits because she was able to do the fitting process in the privacy of her own home, which you can do too. You don't have to go somewhere and have some person with cold hands manhandle your property. You can just do the online quiz. Um, they get very specific. And also they have half sizes, which I don't think any other place has half sizes. So if you are always kind of like busting up or down out of, out of a bra cup, maybe you need a half size and they have them. So Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. And right now, if you are a listener and you go to thirdlove.com slash friends, you will get 15% off your first order. Again, that's your first order, not just your first bra. So you can buy more than one. Take a chance. They have a great return policy too. Thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. We examined those extreme supporters of Donald Trump who believe he is helping them spread their message of white nationalism, even though he disavows them. We go to the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan and to the home of one of the Klan's most famous former Grand Wizards, David Duke. The white supremacist next door. This is the story of what happened when an ambitious racist moved into a tiny town with big plans 
to create a white homeland. We take you to a showdown between a self-proclaimed white nationalist and hundreds of protesters. Sarah Seidner speaks with a KKK imperial wizard. I'm here to spread ideas, talk, in the hopes that somebody more capable uh, will come along and do that. Somebody like Donald Trump who does not give his daughter to a Jew. Yeah, they want to see us because we're flashy. That means that's like we understand PR. We understand how to talk and manipulate journalists. I guess I'm doing that to you right now. And you're <laughs> like, yes. So let's let's not talk about individual stories, but let's talk about sort of the general contours of, of what went wrong in covering, you know, the alt-right so-called um, white nationalist. One of the things you talk about, ironically, I think, sort of because we just spent a long time talking about not getting into people's motives, <laughs> um, it, the profiles we saw that you you cite a couple specifically, but I think everyone knows this genre, which is mm-hmm. the Nazi next door. Mm-hmm. Which weirdly get really, really into people's motivations and interior lives. Like, do you want to talk about that genre of story? Yeah, well, and that genre of story can take a couple of different pathways, too. I mean, so the most egregious um, of that genre are the reporters who, and I talk quite a lot about this in the um, in the report itself, but reporters who are not what I describe as, quote, troll trained, with all of the caveats of that's a very complex word and you have to situate it and blah, 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 all of that. But so who aren't um, versed in the performativity of these online spaces. So when I say don't focus on motives, I'm not saying that motives don't exist. I'm not saying that performance doesn't exist and that's not important. It's that you often don't have access to that information. So you need to focus on what you do have access to. But so these reporters would go into these spaces and would do first-person profiles of folks that, you know, self-identified as white supremacist or whatever, and because they, the, many of these reporters just didn't really know much about internet culture and scare quotes, internet history, and certainly the history of trolling, they did not know when they were being trolled. So it wasn't just that they were, you know, going on and on about these individuals' inner lives. Those individuals were often messing with them and seeding inside jokes or inside references on, on 4chan or 8chan with the, exp- exp- I mean, you one would assume, um, because again, motives are tricky, but they would seed this information with reporters. And then when reporters would repeat verbatim, basically an inside 4chan joke, all anybody did on those sites was then laugh for two and a half weeks straight because you got the New York Times to reference, you know, Seinfeld or in a particular way or whatever the case might be. So, you know, those stories weren't just problematic in that they normalized um, and treated as an equivalent sort of ideology, white supremacist leanings and and, and um, white nationalism, but they also so easily fell into media manipulation traps that they just were too credulous of, so on one hand, they were focusing a lot on motives, but then they were so credulous and they didn't stop to question whether these motives were actually manipulative. So, so many reporters got manipulated into repeating outrageous stuff that would then make communities of white supremacists giggle. And that was the, that was the whole point. That was what they, they would, they would bait reporters to do that and then would delight in the fact that they did. So that's not me speculating. They, you, you could go and watch them laugh that they thought this was all very funny. So 
those particular stories were problematic on a number of levels, not just because they were sort of normalizing and, you know, talking about the target buying patterns of, you know, these white nationalists. And I also thought that that you articulate pretty well maybe what is a more, you know, widely held or, or widely kind of criticism of those stories. But you talk about it in a way that I think is really compelling, which is that those stories also assumed that, you know, shining a light on this is disinfecting it. Right. Like mm-hmm. they they kind of went into these, you know, I put on their pith helmets and, you know, venture into the underbelly of America as though they could just kind of like be neutral observers. And by doing that in and of itself, it would be somehow like the same as exposing them. Well, that yeah, that line that light disinfects is has a long and storied history right. across a number of academic disciplines and in journalism as well. And, you know, I. I understand why people say that. And I think depending on who your audience is, that might be true for a certain subset of your audience, but it typically is going to be the audience who already agrees with you. They're not the ones who need disinfecting. The problem with online content when you are publishing anything, you know, and this this problem becomes even larger when you work at a, at a space like the New York Times, um, is that it's really hard to anticipate who your audience is going to be and to know who's... Um, interests you're going to end up serving by reporting out certain content. So for a certain percentage of New York Times readership, maybe a large percentage of their intended audience, yeah, they all, everybody agrees that, you know, white supremacy is bad. And so reading these stories, it just kind of becomes sort of interesting and we're all in agreement and then we don't really think about it again. But you then have to sort of step back and say, well, what bodies are most likely to have that kind of response where it's more of an abstraction? You're sort of thinking that you're able to frame and cognize white supremacists more as Christopher Guest characters than as, you know, um, enactors of violence against people of color and a whole host of groups, right? So you have certain members of the audience who, yeah, they kind of get it, at least abstractly, and so, you know, they're not further radicalized by the publication of those stories, but it's the percentage of the audience that you can't, you don't know what it is they need. You don't know whether or not light is going to disinfect or if light is simply going to illuminate because the the problem with those kinds of stories, especially ones that deal with conspiracy narratives or other sort of media manipulative media manipulative efforts is that it brings more people to the narrative itself. And people have all kinds of reasons for doing what they do when people believe all kinds of stuff. And some people who find themselves exposed to a New York Times article, they're going to run with it in a different way than was anticipated by the um, journalist. And so sometimes I think it's a failure of imagination of sort of thinking beyond your own ears that you assume that your reader is like you and they're going to respond like you and you can anticipate what information they need and what information they don't need. And when that picture of the of the of the audience is so limited, often replicated replicates your own experiences, you sort of miss out on the potential dangers of um, the folks who don't think like you and who are going to take certain information in a totally different direction and may even, you know, read about uh, white supremacists and then realize, oh, well, hey, here's a group in my neighborhood I can join. And so it's just really hard to know what um, impact you're going to have when you're not thinking beyond your own imagined audience. And another way that that works, and you draw attention to this in the report as well, if you're not thinking you know, beyond your own ears, is if you don't take into consideration that some of your readership might be the people that white supremacy targets. 
and how they might react to the coverage to sympathetic, what, what reads as at least empathetic, if not sympathetic coverage of white oh, supremacists. Sure. I mean, yeah, the message I mean, that it, that sends when you're doing you're doing the Nazi next door story, but not doing the kid who got killed by police next door story. Mm-hmm. You know what 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 does that say <laughs> to the people who look more like the kid who got killed by police? Than- no, exactly, exactly. So yeah, it so it minimizes certain stories and experiences and privileges and foregrounds the experiences of. People who might end up um, not necessarily radicalizing, but if you are a person who kind of privately, quietly maintains racist ideals, but you kind of keep it tamped down because you don't want to lose your job or you kind of know socially it's not acceptable. Well, then here's somebody being presented as a totally normal, everyday Joe who shops at Target. And and then you're sort of affirmed in that aspect of your identity. And so it can draw people out and normalize. And really, you know, it's, it's not even just about normalizing. It depathologizes it. And that can have a huge impact, not just on people who maintain those um, beliefs in themselves. But yeah, like you said, what about, you know, what about the family, the friends and family and individuals who have been targeted by white supremacists, either in a violent way or just through structural inequality, then you're suddenly seeing this story where it's like, this is just an everyday guy. What does that do? How does that how does that further entrench systems of oppression? And those are questions that just don't seem to get answered when it comes to this genre of storytelling. And one reason why these systems seem to exist, uh, something, again, you cover in depth and I, I will, we will only be able to hit on a little bit, but it seems to be a function of the fact that our newsrooms don't have a lot of people in them that are impacted by white supremacy, or not enough, at least. Well, many, yeah, it's not just not impact. I think that people working in newsrooms, many of them um, seem to, I mean, they know what it is, right? But it gets to be, it gets to remain an abstract concept. Yes. Something that you can basically say, these guys suck, but they don't scare me because my body is not at risk. And so, you know, it's not just... The, the the stories that get told, the narratives that unfold when you're talking about a very homogenous newsroom, it does a disservice to the truth because aspects of, of the narrative that otherwise, that other eyes would recognize, you know, that other people with other experiences would sort of say, hey, this is not just an abstract idea. We don't get to frame these people as just Christopher Guest characters. This has a real impact. If more people with an embodied experience of the issues who didn't just approach it as an abstraction were writing the stories, the stories would be written differently, period. And, you know, it also that also speaks to who gets sent out to cover a lot of to cover um, these events when you have sort of embodied events. It's it's typically white men, because generally speaking, also, that's who these folks are going to be most comfortable talking to. So it's even difficult for white women in many cases to kind of be part of the storytelling process because they're not there. And even if they were, they're not going to get the same kind of um, they're not going to be spoken to in the same ways or at all by people on the ground. And so you just have this very, very myopic, singular view of the issue sort of told through the lens of abstraction, which has everything to do with the person who's telling the story and the experiences that they've had in their own bodies. And that point kind of gets us to talking about some solutions and and better, if not best, practices. 
as with many things, one of them is have fewer white men in charge. (laughs) Uh, In general, I feel like that's a good answer to a lot of questions we have in society. (laughs) Fewer straight white cis men. I should be very specific. Mm -hmm. Um, And of Christian uh, backgrounds. Um, But there's other things that you talk about uh, that are a little more specific than that. Although, you know, that's pretty specific. Uh, (laughs) What what do you want to lay out for people here as far as the better practices go? Well, and the the better practices. So this project, a little background on the the project itself. It was supposed to be five thousand words, and um, for listeners who haven't seen it, it ended up being forty five thousand words. It's very that's long. How many words it took <laughs> to tell the story? So originally, it was supposed to just be the third section. Uh-huh. The third section is better practices. And that's broken down into different kinds of categories of stories. How do you report on objectively false information? How do you report on unfolding manipulation and harassment campaigns? How do you report on individual bigots and manipulators? So sort of broken down in those in those different um, categories. You know, so so it sort of depends on what sort of you have the kind of Bigger issues that I, in the second part of the report, that's where I talk about um, some of the um, hindrances, we can say, the reason why it's so difficult to get this right. You have these enormous structural issues that often interfere with reporters' ability to make ethical calls in the newsroom, that it's not just a function of reporters showing up to work and saying, you know what, I'm going to be unethical today. That's not how it (laughs) works in the vast majority of cases. Often you have these structural roadblocks that make that sort of decision-making impossible or at the very least difficult to achieve depending on where you are in your newsroom and where you are in your career, all of that. So you have these four sort of broad issues. You have labor issues, which means, you know, how many, how, how much work is being assigned to what people and, you know, are people being essentially um, exploited in the newsroom? If you are being asked to write absurd amounts of copy every single day, that's when mistakes happen because you're just churning it out because you have to feed yourself, you have to feed your family. So thinking about labor issues, who's being exploited, especially, and that's especially true for freelancers who are sort of contingent and have to write stories. You know, if they get assigned a story that they don't like or they think it's problematic, they're often not, they don't have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to take a stand here because again, you've got to feed yourself. Right. So Can I interrupt about really labor quick? Issues. Can I interrupt mm-hmm. you really quick? Because I had two thoughts in reading that. One is, it's amazing to think kind of how much journalism and therefore maybe democracy um, might be improved if we had better unions and perhaps a universal basic income. At the very right. least, nationalized healthcare. <laughs> right, ex- exactly. I mean, and even if you don't take it to that, to the sort of universal level, it, having well-paid reporters in the newsroom is going to, in itself, impact positively um problematic information flows across social media because when when you are scrambling and you're just you know as a journalist if you're if you're just trying to make it you're trying to support yourself and so it's not just that you're reporting whatever is assigned to you by whatever outlet you're also tweeting and tweeting and tweeting because that's where your next job is going to come from and if reporters weren't so hard up in that way if they had more of a sort of stable um, you know, a stable professional circumstance, there wouldn't necessarily need to be that kind of 
clamoring to communicate information. There could be more of a reflective element to it. Um, you know, and so that that isn't, you know, an immediate obvious best practice for like, how do you report on Richard Spencer? But it is, okay, we've got this systemic problem and it's that reporters are not being paid enough. And you have too many of the same kinds of bodies who are being assigned the stories to begin with. So dealing with labor issues, dealing with homogeneity um, uh, in the... Uh, in the newsroom and sort of the fact that you don't have many people from diverse backgrounds telling stories, especially these kinds of stories, right? So those are two big issues. Another issue is people's relationship to the First Amendment in the United States. I mean, so frequently the impulse when it comes to covering these kinds of stories, especially as it relates to hate, it's not a question of should we report this out. It's more a question of, can this person say this? Is it protected by the First Amendment? And then it's sort of like the ethical reflection stops, that if it is legally permitted, then, you know, there's no further conversation about, well, should we report this out? Is this actually in the public's interest? There's just this sense that part of what it means to embrace free speech is to communicate all speech and basically flatten all speech and treat it all equally. And, you know, that impulse, while it comes from, you could say, a patriotic place, it also means that the most extremist, violent, dehumanizing, harmful speech is going to be equated with, you know, anti-racist speech and then, you know, amplified without much thought about what is this going to do? What impact is this going to have? So labor stuff, speech stuff, um, you know, newsroom diversity stuff, all of these issues, um, they really feed into a media landscape in which the worst kind of information, the most polluted kinds of information can flow the freest and the fastest. So dealing with those systemic issues that obviously, will, and especially sort of dealing with white supremacy in the more kind of granular um, institutional sense, that Obviously, we're not going to solve by tomorrow. So mm-hmm. that is going to, that is the hardest, um, uh, that's the hardest part of the conversation. Then you have the more sort of best practices of like, okay, well, you've got to go to work tomorrow. How do you report on this story about QAnon or whatever conspiracy theory is is that day's, part of that day's news cycle? So you get the big stuff to deal with, which is uh, complex, right? And and then you have the smaller stuff, which is also complex, but it but that is where not just journalists, but everyday citizens have some agency, not full agency, because again, we're all up against these large forces, but you can sort of think about how to do this better, at least sort of weighing between how do I do this worse? How do I do this better? Let's try to do it better. So let's try to talk about the, the the thing that's that's happening right now. Then you brought up QAnon. I was also thinking about the coverage of the Unite the Right march. Mm-hmm. Would you like to weigh in on either of those? Uh, it all makes me so tired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will, if I could share just a personal story here, I said Please. You know, this that this um, report really you know, uh, upset me because I felt so implicated. Maybe you can hold my hand a little bit afterwards here and we can talk about my coverage of Trump rallies. But um, my husband, uh, who's a never Trump Republican, let's say never Trump ex-Republican, was reading like memes in bed last night. Like we're a fun couple. Um, Mm -hmm. And he read something and I I don't even want to say specifically what it was, but it was like a mocking of Trump in some way. And he was laughing about it. And... The thing is, it wasn't actually mocking Trump. It was just like a Trump quote. 
you know, like done up in kind of a funny way, like there may have been a caricature of him or something. And I was, and he he was going to share it. I'm like, don't, don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, why not? I'm like, I'm like, he's like, it's funny. It's obviously funny. It's like, it's, it's extreme. It's, it's silly. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to make you read this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly, I honestly felt like I wanted to intervene because it made me reconsider. Um, like, even if things seem obviously silly, you know, mm-hmm. like QAnon, let's just, let's drill down on QAnon. Right. Maybe it, it's not, a, it's not good to talk about it. It's not good to share. Well, the, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot and it's, it's very distressing because I'm implicated in this too, in a lot of different ways, but funny is kind of how we got here. Mm-hmm. You know, this sort of impulse to engage with funny content, extremist content, content we, you know, in our wisdom, we know better. You know, we we know that it's satirical. And so people sharing things to make fun of it. I've seen a lot of stuff circulating around QAnon sort of shared by progressives that's making fun of, you know, ridiculous QAnon, apparently sincere, like fan videos for QAnon and then and then liberals sharing it and pointing and laughing and like, aren't these people stupid? And first of all, you know, you might be getting played because you don't know if the person who created that video did that specifically to bait a liberal into sharing the content and spreading the, you know, spreading the conspiracy even further. So you don't really, you can't speak to the state of mind or sincerity level of the people sharing stuff. But just just the act of putting it in the world ensures its half-life, you know, and that's what's so hard. So this report, even though I'm talking about journalists specifically, we all are faced with small little decisions like that throughout the day, like what you just described. We see something that's funny or that's ridiculous or Trump did yet another thing that like is just beyond belief. And so the the knee-jerk impulse is to just sort of share it, to comment on it, to engage with it in a way that, you know, expresses our identity and our political position and all of that. And all of that is good. And we've sort of been trained to believe that not only is that good, but that's the way we be a good per that's the way we are a good person on Facebook or on Twitter. Like we get told that engagement is what makes you social and human and it's positive and do it more and do it more and do it more. And in doing that and in being good on the internet, it just allows things to spread and you don't know where it's going to go and you don't know where it's going to end up and you don't know how that's going to impact somebody else who's live, whose life you don't understand. You know, and so uh, uh, one of the things in the report that was the most distressing was was it spoke to that very point that, you know, these a lot of young reporters who were troll trained and scare quotes and who were very well versed in 4chan and Internet culture and memes and all of that stuff, because many of them were assigned to technology sections or, you know, platforms that dealt specifically with tech issues, they were um, and they were close to the to the space because they had basically been playing in or around fortune since they were teenagers. They were seeing a lot of this content, and many of them thought it was hilarious because it had to be they had to be quote just trolling. It had to be a joke. It was too bizarre to see people using swastikas to support Trump. So let's make a listicle. Let's tweet it out. Let's point and laugh. Let's call attention to it because it's just so absurd. And in the process of doing that, that was sort of what triggered the interest um, and 
awareness of reporters who weren't necessarily trolled or weren't necessarily versed in that in that subculture. And so who then descended on it with a different eye. So it kind of it was this perfect storm of people who were too close, who were laughing too hard, and then people who didn't know how to interpret and decode the performativity. And that all of that just came together and metastasized um, in this way that that was hard to map or even realize was happening until it was too late. The truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, or for not long enough, or we forget to change our brush on time. And that's because most brands don't talk about how to brush. They just want you to buy their toothbrush. They focus on flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing. But Quip is different. Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. And Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Again, that's every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. It also comes with a mount that suctions right up to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel or at least your toothbrush will hygienically travel. You yourself may have to make other arrangements wherever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com friends right now, you will get your first refill pack for free, with the Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. So we get to try out the advertisers uh, before we agree to advertise with them because we want the endorsements to be real. And I am excited about this new sponsor and a very real endorsement for Grove. They are a home products marketplace. And I'm kind of picky about the way my house is and the way that it smells and what kind of cleaners we use because we have a lot of pets and I'm a little concerned about that. If you have children, you also might be concerned. You want products that are not going to be bad for the environment or bad for the people in your environment. And Grove is that place that you can find those things. It's that place that you can find those things. (laughs) It's grove.co, not com. Is where you'll find the best home and personal care products online because Grove believes a healthy, beautiful home should be accessible to everyone. Every product at Grove has been rigorously tested for health, effectiveness, and environmental impact. They've shipped over 1 million boxes to families across the country, and in doing so, they're bringing sustainability, safety, and transparency to an industry that's dominated by products with harmful chemicals and toxins. I've had a great experience with Grove. Their customer service is amazing. Um, They carry all the Mrs. Myers stuff, and I guess this shouldn't be an ad for Mrs. Myers, but that's the product line that I really love, and they have all of that stuff. Um, And they have, like, the new Mrs. Myers, like, fall scents, too, if that's what you're into, which I am. And look right here on the paper. It actually mentions Mrs. Myers and Method and 7th Generation and Burt's Bees. With Grove, you're in control also with customizable auto shipments delivered to your door. You can pause or cancel at any time. And you will get reminders so you'll never run out of the products you use every day. 
Find out how Committed Grove is to customers with a 100% happiness guarantee and free shipping. It's so easy to discover amazing and affordable natural home and personal care products with the confidence of supporting a safer environment for your family. And right now, my listeners can try Grove with a two-month VIP membership and bonus gift by going to grove.co, not grove.com, that's G-R-O-V-E dot C-O slash friends. That's grove.co, not com slash friends. Grove makes it easy to have a happy, healthy home. Because it's my show, I get to make an executive call here. Um, <laughs> and and I guess maybe we'll come back to Unite the Right, maybe we won't. But I want to talk a little bit about QAnon. And mm-hmm. for those of people who don't know what it is, ah, damn. Like at this point, if you're a, a, a news junkie and you're listening to this podcast, I, I'm going to assume you kind of know what it is. It's generally, it's a conspiracy theory. That's all actually you really need to know. It's a crazy conspiracy theory, a completely insane, unattached to reality conspiracy theory that has to do with Trump. There was an article I saw today prepping for this show about how the QAnon conspiracy theory has spread to Pinterest. And I think it's it's relevant here. It sounds like you maybe know where I'm going, but it's relevant here because Pinterest, for again, for those who don't know, Pinterest is the most earnest corner of the internet right now. Pinterest is the place you go for um, uh, affirming memes, let's say, and, and uh, cooking hacks. Uh, there's a lot of women with lots of layers of clothing uh, doing sort of style guides. Um, I, I have many Pinterest boards. I had one for my wedding. Uh, it is, there's not a lot of irony on Pinterest, basically. And I think it's a sign, it it speaks to the kind of, um, flow of information that you're talking about, that QAnon has been successfully kind of de-ironized, whatever irony it may have had, and now exists in this space, you know, of supermom you know, readership. It's, yeah. I mean, so there's a concept in, I have some training in folklore studies and there's a concept in folklore called ostension. And it's basically um, when people go and enact like an urban legend, it's bouncing back and forth between lived experience and then sort of traditional expression. Um, So going to a haunted house or something or like reenacting something that you read on the internet or try to go find Slenderman or whatever, like that kind of um, permeability between folklore and then lived experience. And that's what happens in these cases of amplification of conspiracies, because regardless of whether or not um, the conspiracy was, was originally started as a joke, and I think it's a pretty fair assumption to, you know, assume that some of it was tongue-in-cheek because it came from 4chan and you should always be a little wary of content that's coming out of 4chan because of the history and the um, the desire to sort of mess with reporters. And there's been other reporting that I've engaged with and other research I know is on- ongoing where people were certainly at the very least aware of trying to it bait It does appear to into- have had a, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in it at the very beginning. I think it, yeah, that's I mean, clear. Even if every single, even if every single person at the very beginning was joking, right. like, and I, I can't, you can't make that claim. It, right. But even if, even if it was, it kind of doesn't matter because mm-hmm. then through the process of amplification, sincere participants have clearly been brought into the fold, and 
those sincere participants then, you know, amplify the content or trigger reporters to sort of run in and try to engage with them and try to understand it. And so it just becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where it doesn't matter how sincere it was at the beginning. It becomes a real thing that just because a story is fake doesn't mean that it isn't real because it has actual implications in the world and in the way that we understand ourselves and our democracy. And so, you know, this is a, a case where the sort of, that's why motives are, it's not that they're not important. It's not that they're not interesting. They are. But we don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And so, okay, what's it doing? What kind of impact is this having? And then how how does this then lay a blueprint uh, for subsequent conspiracy theorizers to figure out, well, how do I make this story go viral? Because this is also, you know, people learn from how these stories spread. They borrow from previous rhetorical traditions. If you, you know, wanting, if you really want to freak out journalists at this moment, one of the things you can do is try to make something look like it's, you know, popular on Pinterest. Make a hoax look like it's a real thing on Pinterest. That's one thing that you could do. And that's what people will learn from this, that, it, it isn't, it's never confined. These issues are never confined to the case study that you're looking at. It always is going to inform the next one that comes down the road in every single case. What I find so fascinating, and yes, I guess maybe I'm, I'm going to maybe be a target for the next, next conspiracy theory because I, I am fascinated by the Pinterest aspect of this, but Pinterest is specifically image-based, right? So it's, 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 by its nature, decontextualized. Mm-hmm. Like what you do when you save an image on Pinterest is pick it up from a web page and put it by itself into kind of a virtual file folder, right? So that's interesting to me in in relationship to what you're talking about. And then the other thing about, Pin, about why Pinterest is an, is a disturbing, fascinating place for this to turn up is that Pinterest is about putting things into action too. Like what kinds mm-hmm. of things do people pin? Exercise routines, recipes, Mm. floor plans, style guides. Pinterest is very permeable with real life. So I think that speaks to exactly what you're talking about here. Um, And now maybe we'll we'll get to when Unite the Right. (laughs) Because speaking of of real life. Mm -hmm. So again... People who listen to this show are probably well aware of the event that happened last weekend and aware that it was something like two dozen people who showed up to actually participate in the rally, so-called. You could also call it a picnic, I guess. Like, it's not very big. <laughs> um, and hundreds, if not thousands, of counter-protesters. Mm-hmm. And no one's given me a head count on journalists. But I would guess it was closer to the number of counter-protesters than it was to the number of uh, white supremacists. What were you thinking as you saw that coverage? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the proportion of participants was, was striking because, yeah, it was just reporter after reporter after reporter after reporter. And, you know, one of the points of pushback that, that I see often um, on Twitter in particular is, if you try to say we shouldn't cover these or this is not this is not actually why are why are why are we spending so much ink proverbially on these stories the pushback is often well it's news it's newsworthy it's it's you know people are marching through the streets what are what are what do you love censorship and so the conversations often sort of devolve in that direction 
But it does raise the question of it, what is what is newsworthy in our present media landscape? I mean, I guess it's newsworthy in the sense that a lot of people are going to click on stories about it. So there's an imperative to write about it, you know, so it's I guess it's newsworthy in that sense. It's going to make somebody money, you know, um, but does it actually is it actually as important as the stories that aren't being told, the the columns that aren't being filled with stories about you know, systemic oppression and police brutality and other issues that are immediately affecting people's lives um, and and in many cases ending those lives. Like, how do you how do you do that calculus? How do you decide what subject, what story gets more space, physical space on a website? And so that was the, you know, the pervasive question in my mind. I saw a great cartoon. I'm afraid that I don't remember the name of the cartoonist, but Jay Rosen at NYU, he had tweeted out, an image, um, someone's cartoon, and it was one side of it. It was all of the counter protesters holding signs, you know, love, not hate. And all of the sort of these, these slogans of, you know, um, solidarity and love and compassion. And then you had in the bottom right corner, like five, like one person dressed up like a Klansman and one person dressed up in a, in a in Nazi regalia. And, you know, one or two other people. And then there was 35 reporters with their cameras exclusively pointed at the at the at hate. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the the focus of the cartoon. And I think that I think that that really captured the disconnect. Although I will say what was missing from that cartoon, I felt was that it's not. It, you know, hate, even though the numbers might be smaller, it just doesn't stand idly in the middle of a street looking pathetic. That's not what hate is more virulent than that. And so it isn't just, it's not enough to say there are fewer of them in number. And so it is um, inappropriate for there to be such a disproportionate amount of coverage of them. That may be true, but those few people make life hell for countless others. So, you know, it's a disproportional coverage. And also hate is very dangerous, even in small amounts, especially because when you think about, okay, you have all these in the cartoon, you have all these reporters flashing, you know, their their cameras at these folks and holding out microphones and all of that. That then spreads that message. It spreads the message to more people who are represented as being the counter-protesters. And so you you still have the message spreading even as the critique that you know there's such a it's such a small group of people comparatively it still has a disproportionate effect in part because of the way that it's covered so it's it it was it was a it was an overwhelmingly heavy and heartbreaking and strange and bizarre day like so many of our days have been lately mm. so i'm going to play a simon editor a little bit and you tell you give me some feedback Okay. Uh, so one thought that I had about the Unite the Right coverage, and you didn't mention this, and maybe that's because you very wisely did not obsessively follow it like I did. Um, but also, I consume a lot of right-wing media because I consider it kind of part of my job to see what, mm -hmm. what that, what's happening. And right-wing media coverage of the Unite the Right rally was a lot about how violent Antifa was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Right? And about how in their critique of the journalists that covered the hate rally and did not cover the supposed equal and opposite, you know, violence and hatred of yeah. Antifa. Both sides, both sides. Both sides, both sides. And you you have you have you do a great job doing, you know, a critique of both sideism 
in your report. But in this particular case, part of me was like, guys, do you realize that the reason why there's so few pro-white supremacy people is because they knew all those Antifa people were going to be there. (laughs) You know, like there is a purpose to having that overwhelming counter-protest, right? Like it's not just that you can, yes, some of them were bad actors. I'm sure that some people, I know that some of them yelled at reporters and said bad things about the police or whatever, but that wasn't most of them. And also Mm -hmm. their presence there served a purpose, you know? to speak to the fact that they, were, they wanted to drown out the, the hatred to the extent that they could. So I felt like that was something that didn't get said at all. <laughs> yeah. But, well, one, one of the things that I did see in some of the, the unfolding Twitter stuff is that there, there did seem to be a fair number of people who were maybe hoping that there was going to be violence on quote unquote on both sides yeah. that that you know that so for if you're talking about sort of far right media that is a um, of course a, a an attractive narrative right that you have these sort of le- violent leftists and pointing at that and so yeah they're they're the desire for certain narratives to unfold and the desire for certain kinds of clickbait and and it yeah that definitely that was something that I saw and that was also part of the depressed. Um, heaviness, and then I just wanted to sort of sit in the corner for the whole day. Well, and now I'm going to be Simon Editor part, uh, continuing Simon Editor, which is that what I might do if I had a newsroom of my own and United the Right happened, I would send a reporter out to cover it maybe, right? Try to do real bare bones. X many people showed up, you know, X many people showed up to counter-protest. This is how many media people protested. I mean, it's worth writing up, you know? Mm -hmm. And then... You know, the good thing about there being so few uh, participants in the Unite the Right rally is you could probably find out where they were from, every single mm-hmm. one of them. And you could go to their hometowns. And you could start to ask the people in those hometowns, maybe especially people of color, what's it like here? Mm-hmm. What's your experience of white supremacy in this town? And I think you would pr- probably get a real interesting story somewhere along the line. Yeah, that was my, so when the infamous Nazi ne- Next Door story came out and, you know, they the reporter did interview a couple of folks, a couple of, you know, people from the white nationalist past and, um, you know, a few, I think one person, um, I forget, from a Jewish organization, I believe, Um you know, but it wasn't. Uh, it was just basically people either saying, "Well, he's really nice." Otherwise, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> you know he's such a nice young man. Um, you know, what was really striking to me was was that missing element of, "Yeah, what about the what about his black neighbors? How are they doing? How how do they feel? What what did they know? Like, did they did they realize that this profile was going to be written? And how does that change how a person would walk through their would walk through their neighborhood?" Um, you know, so yeah, I think that pers- perspectival shifts are really critical. And then when you taught the kind of critique of you, this is newsworthy. Uh, okay, well, I I'm not saying that it isn't newsworthy, but I but I do think that how you frame the story is really what matters. And whose voices are you seeking out? And whose voices are you giving the platform to begin with to discuss these issues that you can have? You can cover newsworthy events, you can still do your job as a journalist and not end up or at least minimize the amount that you are doing work for white supremacists who, you know, if it was up to them, entire groups of people wouldn't even be alive. Mm -hmm. 
As we wrap up, I'm going to touch on the labor part of this again, Mm. because Mm -hmm. one of the things you talk about um, and you mentioned in kind of uh, discussing the pressure there is on individual reporters to be public people, to tweet a lot, to write a lot, to have a brand, um, and how, how, what, I'm not, it's, I want to, I almost called it a double-edged sword, but I'm not sure if there are two edges to it. <laughs> you know, it, it just is hard. It's a hard, I'm not going to complain personally, but, um, I'm glad that I am at a part of my career where, where it's, I'm, I don't have to do as much of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, then you talk about the need for self-care among journalists and, that's something I talk about on the show a lot in general. It's the self-care of anyone who's working in social justice at all. And one thought I had as I was reading this is that, you know what I want to do? Is I want to tell the people who are doing good work how, how much I value them. Mm-hmm. Because they don't hear that. Like the ratio <laughs> of death threats, let's say, to thank you is pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that was something that came up in the conversations that I had with the journalists I spoke to. And they were really intense. I mean, any kind of ethnographic research, you're you're going into someone's life and you are asking them to to be truthful. And truth is often exhausting, mm-hmm. you know. And so any kind of ethnographic work is is hard. But, you know, a lot of a lot of the journalists that I spoke to, especially the ones who feel that they were somewhat complicit in amplifying this narrative you know, people are bereft. They feel guilty or they feel like they, they've they have made the world a little bit worse and they carry that on their shoulders. And that is not something that journalists are, the ones I've spoken to, have felt comfortable speaking to. The sort of the worry, the, the anxiety, the, the sense of foreboding anytime you get assigned a story that you know is just going to send however many thousands of people telling you how terrible you are and all of the reasons why you don't deserve to potentially even be alive. That there's a lot of anxiety coming from a lot of different directions that I don't know, I don't think gets talked about enough. Because with many of the folks that I was speaking to, and I'm not, you know, I'm not like friends with the people who I who I interviewed with. I've, I'm friendly with many of them, and, and I guess I'm friends with a, a few of them. But like, I'm not on the whole. Many of these these folks I'd never spoken to before, and the almost across the board, people were saying this is the first time I've ever openly discussed how terrible I feel all the time, how much I worry constantly. You know, and and so half of the conversations I had um, ended up being conversations about self care and like how are you how are you how are you taking care of yourself? Do you have people who are looking after you? Do you what are you doing when you're assigned something about sort of Me Too stories? Because this was part of of some of that. And I just this the the sample size that I engaged with there wasn't a lot of that, and you could hear it in people's voices. It, those those conversations ended up becoming. Very, very heavy and um, very emotional. And also this kind of this feeling of I'm doing my best and I can't not go out on Twitter and try to get a job. I, I have to have a job. And so kind of recognizing what the problems were, but not knowing individually what to do about it and feeling stuck and torn and that the primary source of feedback you get is people telling you they hope you get raped. Or they hope you get that they hope that you die, or they want to do that themselves to you. Like that is 
something about journalism that I wish were talked about more openly because it really, um, that's not normal. And the problem is that that has become very normalized for folks. Many of the people, especially many of the women and reporters of color that I spoke to, they kind of ruefully accepted that sort of abuse. It was just part of the job. But how did we get to a place where being maligned and dehumanized becomes just a workplace that that's just, you know, that's just part of your everyday job. That's not healthy. That's not okay. And we have to figure out a way to fix that because that's not, people can't, first of all, they can't do their best work under those circumstances. It's a labor issue. I've been thinking a lot about what to tell people um, to do about this. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have your specific recommendations. And I do think that if I had specific advice to offer people upon reading your report, one of them would be, you hear it a lot these days, but I'll say it again, it's subscribe to your local paper. Mm-hmm. Um, support good public journalism, especially when you see it. Um, you have a whole section in your piece that I, I don't want to get into because we don't have time about the commercial aspect of journalism. Oh, mm-hmm. Also, because I have advertisers. Um, <laughs> and also, uh, and, and I would say, personally, I'd say support universal basic income and, you know, uh, universal health care. But also, it sounds corny, but have you thanked a journalist today? Mm-hmm. You know, um, if someone did work that you love, tell them. Yeah. Especially if it's a them or a she. Right. Right. Yes. And I think that that's a great I think that is a good strategy across the board in life. And, you know, especially when you're thinking about so amplification issues don't necessarily have to be terrible and (laughs) the death knell of democracy. They really don't. Amplification issues can also be harnessed in the opposite direction. So I also think that, you know, one strategy for everyday citizens and other journalists and everybody is just Who's, whose voices are you amplifying? What stories are you choosing to give light to? That light, you know, instead of framing it in terms of light disinfecting, but, but what can light illuminate? You know, how do you do that in a positive way? How do you support others? How do you, so it's not just, you know, saying thank you to people who are doing good and careful and thoughtful work, although God knows they, you know, would, would value that actually positive feedback for once. But, you know, when you are thinking about who you're retweeting, who are you doing it for and why? And what kinds of voices and what kinds of bodies are you bringing the most attention to? So if you spend all your day tweeting about, you know, Trump and all of the terrible stuff that's swirling around and all the disgusting, violent, dehumanizing, harmful behavior enacted by extremists and manipulators and abusers, that's good and it's important to call attention to who's being harmed. But also, then your whole world revolves around them and they're getting just as they're they are they are enlarged by that engagement. And and who else could or should be enlarged? And I think that that's that's something, you know, that I try to think about and I think everybody could think about more carefully, again, not just on, in social media, but um, in the world, you know, whose whose voices aren't we hearing and, and what can we do individually on a day-to-day basis about that? That seems like a great place to wind up. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Since I front-loaded a lot of my deep thoughts, I will keep this short, but I do want to urge you, the super fans, 
not just to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast, but also seriously, send a fan letter today. Send a fan tweet. Send a complimentary direct message. There is a journalist in your life that needs it. If you want to send a special note to a journalist that represents someone who's not a straight white guy, you could do worse than look at the archives of this very podcast. We featured quite a few of them. Or, you know, just take a look for yourself. Look through what you're reading. If you don't find a non-straight, non-white, non-guy in your recent reading, well, do something about that. That's it for this week. Please take care of yourselves. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.